You'll be glad to know that I don't intend to, int I don't intend to detain you for too long. Uh, we just try to share the things that the Lord has pressed in our hearts. And hopefully they are going to be as much a blessing to you as they have been to me as I was preparing this, um, uh, this word. As Andrew has already said, we're continuing our studies in the book of Romans, and my portion for this morning is just six verses uh, from chapter 7. It's six verses from chapter 7, uh, beginning from verse 1. And I'm going to read from my Bible. You can follow from yours. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him, who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And as always, we trust that the Lord will bless the public reading of his word. A cursory observation would seem like a, a passage that is uh, out of nowhere, that is not linked from what has happened before. But I assure you that this is a continuation from the things that have gone before, particularly from the previous chapter that we've been dealing with in the past couple of weeks. You would be reminded from chapter 6 how it is that scripture pivoted from the issues that were dealt in in chapter 5 to come to practical living of a Christian. So this is going to be the subject that is going to be continued in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And we will see that now with the knowledge of the things that are now confirmed, that we are justified uh, by faith. And that now, we, now that we are in that standing with God, how ought we to live? We remember that the fallacy that sometimes people accuse the Christian faith, that, oh, if it is by faith, so and by grace, so we can live any way we like. We remember how that was emphatically crushed in chapter 6. We remember the words, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? 
God forbid. It cannot be. Being saved by faith, standing by grace, does not leave us at liberty to live any way we like. We also do remember in, chapter, in verse 15, what then shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Again, scripture replies, God forbid. That is a misconception, a misunderstanding of scripture to anyone who thinks that because we are saved by faith and because it is by grace that we are saved, therefore a Christian can live any way they like. That is not the teachings of scripture. That is absolutely foreign. On the contrary, we see that because we now know that we are Christians and we now have been saved, we have now been justified, our lives ought to change. Our lives can no longer be like we used to live before. There is a change. There is a necessity that there is a change in someone who comes into faith. And as we remember from chapter 6, the point that really comes out strongly is that because of the death of Christ, the death of Christ ended the tyranny of sin. So now in chapter 7, what we're going to see that the death of Christ ended the dominion of the law. Now, these things being spoken of now to people who knew the law... When they understood this, and then it becomes a question. Let us remember, the people that knew the law understood the law as their means of righteousness. They missed their, that point. They understood to mean that as long as they keep the law, they will obtain righteousness with God. But they missed the point, the fact that the law was a temporal measure which was meant to point them to somebody else who was yet to come. The law was meant to reveal in them the fact that actually you are not good. You are a bad person. It's like when you open a curtain in your house. And all of a sudden, because of the rays of the sun, you notice that there is a film or a layer of dust on your table. That dust was always there. You just didn't know it. Why? Because your curtains were shut. But because now the curtains are opened, you can now see clearly that there is actually dust on your table. Do some cleaning up, please. That is what the Lord does. Now to the Jew, when they understand this, that okay, we are not supposed to live in sin anymore. How should we then live righteously? How then in this now revelation, in this dispensation, should I as somebody who knows the law to live in a way that is righteous before God? The tendency now to somebody who knows the law is... I am now going to be so observant of the law because the understanding there can be erroneous to mean that, okay, I don't have to live in sin anymore. I understand that. Chapter 6 has made it very clearly. 
So now how am I going to live? There is a tendency or there could be an inclination that therefore I am going to be so strenuous in the observation of the law in an attempt to obtain that status or that continuation of holiness. So now what we see here is that the Apostle Paul or the Spirit of God is going to address that head on. And he speaks specifically to those people who knew the law. And then he says to them, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. If you try and rewind a little bit and think of this from the perspective of a Jew who has lived under the law all his or her life, for us it may be easy, but you, from a Jewish point of view, it becomes very, very difficult to understand how can you reconcile the age of living in the law and what now scripture is teaching in the New Testament. How, what does that mean? What do we say today in the 21st century to a Jew that becomes a believer? What do we say to them? Is there a law that is different to those that are Jews for New Testament believers to us as Gentiles, as New Testament believers? I've been asked this question. What does a Jew do? Is a Jew still, because they are Jew by custom, because they are Jew by birth, should they still, when they, become, they come into the faith, they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, should they continue in Judaism? It's a legitimate question, folks. And I would submit to you that this is what the scripture is trying to deal with here. To say, look, it cannot be that you can be a New Testament believer justified by the works of Christ and we also continue to hold on to the things of the law. This is, very, this is a very, very difficult challenge to somebody who is a Jew. They will still want to cling. And it is true even to this day, sadly, that there is a tendency amongst believers to hold on to some of the practices of Judaism in an attempt to make ourselves holier or to seem better than everybody else. Because our natural self pushes us to that point where we still think we have a part to do here. We have a part to do here. But this is not so. As the, as the Spirit of God is going to illustrate this very clearly. What does the Scripture of God do? The Scripture of God invokes one of the most important institutions, not established by man, not established by the government, not established by culture, not established by society. 
The institution that was established by God himself. Let nobody lie to you today. Marriage is not a social construct. Marriage is an institution that originated and was founded by God. One man, one woman. We don't hate anybody as Christians. But we say this very lovingly and very kindly, recognizing that there are real issues that men and women living in this world, in a fallen world, that they struggle with. We deal with them very gentle and with kind and tender hearts. But at the same time, we'll be truthful to be true to God. If we love people, we ought to tell them the truth, not in arrogance, not in quarrelsomeness, but in a desire for them to know the truth of God as is spelled out in Scripture. And so the Spirit of God is going to invoke this very important institution and says, take it from what God has already told us, what God has already laid unto us, that a man and a woman, when they become married, they become bound to each other by law. A law that God decreed. A man and a woman shall leave their parents and they will become one. In the eyes of God, that never changes. Society might change, but God will be God. Because he is God. He will not change. And for as long as the two live, they shall and are married to each other in the eyes of God. If any one of them be, becomes involved with another person and they come into a relationship with another person, in the eyes of God, it becomes adultery as long as the two still live. But if one of them dies, the surviving spouse is at liberty in the laws of God, in the teachings of scripture to remarry. And when they remarry, they are not living in adultery, whether it's a man or whether it's a woman. They are not living in adultery. So this is the parallel that the scripture then tries to draw to a Judaistic person who has now come into the faith to say, it cannot be that because you were living in Judaism, you can then come into the faith because when you come into the faith, scripture te teaches us very clearly that Christ is the end of the law. What does that mean? It means the, the work of Christ that took place on the Calvary brought to an end. In other words, the work that the law was supposed to do has been fulfilled in Christ. As New Testament believers, we are no longer under that law that was in times before. In other words, that law comes to an end. We cannot therefore continue 
bringing those things into New Testament believing. This is emphasized throughout scripture. It's there in Colossians chapter 1, chapter 2. talks about all these things. Scripture is consistent to that effect. Because the work of Christ abolishes the dominion of law, we are now, as New Testament believers, free from the law. Then, if we are now free, what does this mean to us? Verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Now, notice, it doesn't say that the law is dead. It says to the believer, you are dead to the law. The law still has a function. It will still continue to be the light that shines and exposes the dust. It has a role. But now we have become dead to the law because of the work of Christ. Now, I think it is easy to see this as just a description of the difference between being under the law and being under grace. But I think there is more to this than that. I think here scripture is calling us to something that is much, much, much deeper and much higher. That is more than being not under the law. So what does this mean? We are, you also are now become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Let us remember what the law is or what the law does. The law exposes and brings about the knowledge of sin. That's the function of the law. The law reveals to us what awful people we are. That's what it does. And as long as somebody observes the law, they have to observe it to the fullest extent because you would have to fulfill every single and every letter of the law. For someone who is living under that law, they will be constantly reminded of their sins. It never ends. And that's what the law does. They'll be constantly reminded of their sins. But to a New Testament believer, becoming dead to the law, it's something that is much higher than not being under the law. What does it mean? When I was a little boy, um, we used to go um, um, to my mother's rural areas, where my mother came from. And in Zimbabwe, when it's raining, it's not like when it rains here. The rain that observe here, in, we have a word actually in Zimbabwe, which means amatempugani. It means uh, fly saliva. 
Because the rain that you, 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 we tend to get in this country, it's, it's just light, light rain. Right? Go to Zimbabwe and experience rain. It's absolute torrential. I mean, it's absolutely heavy, heavy rain. It may not last the whole day, but when it comes, it does come. Right? So what we used to do as little kids, take off our clothes and would run into the rain. Me, my sisters, my friends, and everybody, naked and just <laughs> run into the rain. There was no problem. Why? We were not awoken. We were not alive to the issues that sin, as we grow up, now brings to our minds and makes us aware of. You remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were walking around like Deduzi in the rural areas in Zimbabwe. No problem. Why? Because they did not know anything about nakedness or no nakedness. They did not know. We ran into the rain because we did not know either. We didn't care. We were free. We were free from the guilt that comes with the knowledge of sin. Law exposes us and shows us, makes us awake and aware of sin. And therefore, if I now run out naked, scripturally, I'll be sinning because that is not modest, that is not decent, that is not lovely, it's not a good report. It will be sinful now. But when I was a little child, no wonder children are used as an example, the Lord Jesus' children, because they are not awakened to the laws of sin that then teach us, thou shalt not run naked onto the streets. But as a child, as a child, that law does not apply to you. And when you run on the streets naked, it's not a problem. So what is this teaching me? I don't know whether this is attainable. But I believe this is what the scripture is challenging us to. The, Judaism, the Judaism, Judaism encouraged people. When people saw the do's and don'ts in Judaism... It encouraged them to strive more stringently in their efforts not to do things and to do things. But what is a New Testament believer? A New Testament believer is set at liberty. I do not spend my life, I'll speak for myself here, I do not spend my life, and this became very clear to me, in the 2000s. I do not spend my life counting my sins. I do not wallow in the sins that I have committed. It's not because I delight in them, but I do not focus my life 
on what I should do and not do. I focus my life in living for my Lord. I die to awakenness to the sin that is in this world. How do you witness to somebody you meet on the streets and they are scantily dressed? How would you witness yourself to somebody in a pub? How was the Lord able to be amongst publicans and tax collectors and yet be without sin? He wasn't awake to sin. There was nothing that sin could throw to the Lord that would stick. If I take my car remote control right now and I go to Sarah's car, I can press my remote control as much as I want. Sarah's car will not respond. Why? There is no receptor in her car that would receive the instruction from me. I pray, dear saints, that we would die to the motions of sin. So much so that sin would find nothing to stick onto us. Do you think that is attainable? I think it is. I think we can be so awake to the Lord, we can be so awake to holiness and righteousness that we can become oblivious to anything else that sin can throw at us. I think this is more than just being not under law. This becomes a level that a new believer is called on to, which is more than just observing do's and don'ts. This becomes a calling to a believer to immerse themselves in holiness, in the things of God, so much so that the fragrance of the believer would become such a sweet savor for which the stench of this world has no part. This passage is a very interesting passage because it is a practical passage. Chapter, chapter 7. Jim will pick up from next week, but you will see when the Spirit of God addresses the practical issues that we encounter in this world, the struggles that we encounter in this world. But this is your calling and my calling. That even though this flesh is going to want to drag us down, even though this flesh is going, want, is going to want to pull us in one particular direction. We are called not to a list of do's and don'ts, but we are called to a new testament which serves the law of the past 
which had a list against us of do's and don'ts, the law which reminded us of sin every time, the law that embroiled us in a struggle of will, we are now called to a new testament, a new covenant that liberates us from a list of do's and don'ts but transforms us into the likeness of our Lord. Our only mission is no longer the do's and don'ts, but our mission is to be like Christ. Do you think Christ, do you think scripture of God is demanding more from us than we are able to? When he says, be holy because God is holy. Do you, think that, that's a, do you think that is a misstatement? Do you think scripture is demanding from us things that we cannot attain? Do you think God is calling to us something that he has not given us power to attain? I speak to myself. Go and read for yourself. Romans is a very, very critical book. Because it takes us far above the issues of just coming to church. The issues of us just praying every now and then. We are called to something that is much higher and much greater and much deeper than we can ever imagine. We can be holy. The work of Christ has defeated the dominion of sin. Chapter 6. In chapter 7, the work of Christ has defeated the dominion of the law. We are free to be like him and be dead to all the things that the law reminds us of. Let us pray. Our precious Lord and our good God, we thank you always because you are good unto us. We bless